Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are just as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They're milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I don't want to introduce myself because I don't want to waste any second saying my name or anything because we have a legend with us. We have an icon with us. We have a writer with us. We have a person who, like, their job section just keeps on adding a comma, I feel, every year, which is a beautiful thing. And a hyphen. (laughs) We are here with the Emmy Award-winning television host and executive producer of syndicated talk show Tamron Hall, veteran journalist and best-selling author Tamron Hall. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Danny. So good to be with you. Oh. And I love the legend. I feel I feel like when I introduced Susan Lucci, the first season of the Tamron Hall show, that's must have been what she felt when I described. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, you are a legend oh, who also a legend in everything you do. And one of the things I'm really curious about how you do so well is time management, because I don't know how you have 55 jobs. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know, it's like the, uh, there was a show called in living color and they had this character who was Jamaican and they had a hundred jobs. I am not Jamaican, but I have a hundred jobs. Uh, no, you know what it is. It really is planning. I plan out literally everything down on Sunday night, everything that I wear on the show for the week down to my Spanx I've picked out. Um, and I learned that from my dad who was in the military and he said, listen, if you can pre-plan, that keeps you from getting in the trap of delay. And what he meant by that was, for example, how many times have you gotten up and said, oh my gosh, what am I going to wear? Oh, that that shirt's dirty. Oh my God, where's that dress? And now you're looking through the hamper and you're doing all, and suddenly you're late getting in the car, then you're late getting to the office or you're late to an event or you're late meeting someone and it spirals. So as much as I can plan in advance, it's like meal prep life. My life is one big (laughs) meal prep. Um, And where I prep, I chop the onions beforehand and all of that. Uh, And that helps me do things like write this crime novel, like show up for on time to pick up my kids. So I'm not the mom running down the street. Sometimes I am, but not all the time. But I'm really, I'm really, I'm a Virgo too. And and Virgos, if you know any Virgos, we we obsess over planning and the details (laughs) and managing. So that's how I I, I pull it off some days where I'm proud of myself and I'm like, Yes, I did a whole show and I picked up my kid and I cooked dinner and I look good in my fit, you know. And then other days I'm in the corner crying my eyes out like my child is going to write a dear mom. I'm going to be Joan Crawford to this child. (laughs) It's terrible. But pre-planning is the secret, I think. And yeah, speaking of additional jobs, Cameron is the author of the new book, Watch Where They Hide. And I feel like I devoured this book in like a day or two. And then I started thinking like, if you're an author who spent like months, a year or more writing a book, like how do you feel when people are like, oh yeah, I read it all in a day? Like, See, let me tell you. So to be very honest with you, that was the feeling. I So the first book was my very first novel ever. My first work of fiction other than the life I make up every day. And it was during, you know, the global pandemic. So I had all of this time and these ideas and I was afraid in some ways to get it wrong. I was also afraid to feel inauthentic and I poured every detail that was in my mind into the first book. I'm honored that people enjoyed it. I'm honored that 
it was well received, especially because it was my first. But the, the idea and the intention of the series was to be a juicy, quick read. Uh, I grew up with Nancy Drew under my bed, like the, the big box set that my aunt gave me one year. And it's with all these books, and they're little thin books and they're designed to devour. So I wanted a an adult version of that where you didn't feel that you needed to stop everything in your life to consume this book, yet it lingered with you. I also, to be very honest with you, much of Jordan Manning, much of this case was inspired by real life. Mm. And that allowed for these thoughts to flow so freely. But I wanted it to feel like I just uh, watched the new uh, True Detective and I'm in episode three, which is amazing. But, you know, you want more. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to leave you exhausted. I wanted you to feel like, whoo, that was good. I need some more like that. I love that. And I love you talking about how writing your first novel as well. It was kind of going into uncharted territory for you, which is sort of funny because as we were kind of uh, talking about at the beginning of this, you have covered so much ground. And I mean, like, I feel like reporting, having conversations, interviewing, diving deep in that form at this point almost is probably second nature to you. But how was it? Was it almost feeling like you were like, the new kid at school getting into like yeah. novel writing? Like, was this something you've yeah. always wanted to do or was what was the internal monologue going on for this? Honestly, it was not just the new kid at school, but it, it was the, I'm sure you've seen the, the news stories or we just had an up and coming designer who went to design school at age 58. So not only was I the new kid at school, I'm the old new kid and I'm there with a bunch of teenagers and they're going, oh, what is this old lady? Is she the new sub? And I'm like, no, I'm in class. And so with all of these years, 30 years of uh, being a reporter, it was exhilarating. It was terrifying. It was, to be quite honest with you, I often think of the people who've rooted for me in my career. We call them the TAM fam, the folks who watch my show and, and support the things that I do. But I wanted people to see this leap of faith at this age, much like when I had my son at 48. I didn't know how that was going to turn out. It was a big leap of faith. Leaving my prior job to start this show was a leap of faith. And this book was the same thing. It's, it's this bet on yourself mentality that I have experienced many times in my personal and professional life. And now here it was with the book. But in that fear, Danny, and in that nervousness, how do you muster up the ability to say, I'm still going to try it. F it. I'm going to do it. And they might not like it. I was, you know, people came to me and said, write a memoir, uh, write a beauty book. And those things I I assumed I would hopefully have time on this planet to pull off one of those, like how to look sexy at 80 or whatever. And a memoir when all of the relevant parties are no longer alive. I can be like, man, <laughs> um, But for the crime novel, it was something that I, I saw as this bet on yourself, but it was born from the authentic journey as a crime journalist for 30 years of my career. Absolutely. And I feel like reading this case in the book that I don't want to spoil, but I, I could feel like it was reminiscent of some real stories. I feel like especially for our audience who follows crime news, were there any specific cases you had in mind when you were writing it? Oh, absolutely, Sarah. You know, I had a show called Deadline Crime for six seasons on ID. And it was a part of the beginning of a wave um, that we see now of big crime shows. And two cases in particular, well, I've, I've covered many similar cases to what we read in this latest novel. A mother goes missing, who is the primary suspect, 
what was happening in her life. Who are the allies that want answers about her disappearance? So on one hand, you have the inspiration of a case that I covered in Virginia, where a man decided that it was in his mind easier to take the life of the mother of his children than to get a divorce. Mm. And the second case involved a young woman in Oklahoma who had fallen on hard times with her boyfriend and they decided that they would go onto a website and she would get into transactional sexual relationships with men to earn money. And she one night responded to a ad and an opportunity and she ended up in a wooded area with a man who took her life. She was pregnant at the time. He did not know that. And we later learned in the, you know, investigation of this, he was a serial killer and had killed another woman and, and the ties of the DNA uh, eventually got him convicted. But her husband was the primary suspect for a very long time. And still to some people is a point of suspicion. Uh, and it was one night, Sarah and Dana, I was in Oklahoma covering the story and it was really late at night. You know, when I did deadline crime, I used to tell people it takes train, plane, and automobiles because to get to some of these places, for some reason, even though the crime in big cities, they always, the ones that we talk about are in rural areas, so <laughs> yeah. fly to somewhere, get on a plane, get in a car, and get there. And so this night, though, I was in Oklahoma, and I had not been at the site of the uh, Murrah Federal Building blast um, since I was a young reporter and covered it. So I said, you know, I'm going to go by there and just give my respects, and, and went by that site, got back, couldn't sleep and started to reread this case. And I started to honestly spiral reading and, and overthinking perhaps what her last minutes must have been like. Outside, dark, this, wait, wait, what? why of all the people to respond to, I respond to him running for her life because what we did learn in Uncovering Police that he chased her down. She fought for her life. And to be... In the middle of nowhere, knowing that she was pregnant, I just, oh boy. And, and it just was so triggering for so many reasons. And this case was born from that complex relationship the media now has, and we all do, with the facts when a woman goes missing. Mm. And we instantly believe the minute we see the husband or the man in her life on TV, oh, it's him. He did it. You did it. And so, yeah, it was inspired by two cases. And, and if I, my answer is always so long, which is funny that my book was so short. Um, I, <laughs> I, I can be very honest with you. You know, the ally that Jordan Manning, who is the investigative reporter um, that we're following, the ally, she becomes to Shelly, the sister of the woman who's gone missing, touches on my own personal story with my sister. Absolutely. And I would be, I didn't fully know it. And I see you both nodding. I didn't really know that, that I was a little bit Shelly mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. the book was done. And I was like, wait a minute. I, in this case, I'm Jordan in many ways inspired, but I'm also Shelly, this sister who wants answers. And I truly, and I will tell you from my heart, I didn't realize that that's what was happening in the writing process until it was done. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches, and honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sounds like almost that a lot of, because like you were saying, when you're doing investigations and you can't really sleep or rid your mind, you go down kind of to look into more stuff and everything like that. But kind of in writing this book in a new lane of novel writing and fiction, the story that you really kind of had coming up to your forefront and like were thinking about more was of your own. Like, did you, and you didn't expect that, but how was that process kind of, because uh, of course there's like anybody who will read this will probably see bits and pieces of you sprinkled throughout it. How was that process for you to be like, oh gosh, this is conjuring up something. Uh, maybe I didn't want to conjure right now or think about or know that I had to think about. It's so interesting, Danny. It wasn't until the end, right? Until the book was complete. And you know, it, I live in New York and I'm sure many people have seen Hamilton now that it's on Disney and there's it. And they ask him, you know, what is he afraid of? And he was writing. He was always afraid. He was writing, writing, writing. And there's that great scene where he's afraid of running out of time. And, and, and for me in the writing process, I truly was in a, in a state of relief that I could get the story out, but not knowing that the relief was really reconciling some of the guilt, some of the things I wish I could have done. They were all being reconciled through Shelley. In the story, you see Shelley desperately looking for answers. Her sister Marla is missing, and she takes this bold move to get Jordan's attention. When my sister's case happened, I was 
a local news reporter, but I wasn't well known. I was known in Chicago, but not known nationally. And I remember being on the phone with the detective saying, we know who did this, but we don't have enough evidence to charge him. And now thinking I should have gone there and I, I should have said, what do you mean? And even though I didn't have a national name, I knew people, but we were still grappling as a family with the reality and and, and the, the enormity of facing mm-hmm. that our, my sister had lived with domestic violence as a part of her journey. So I didn't know. So Shelly becomes in some ways this, this avenger that I wish mm-hmm. I had been, but that wasn't the journey I was meant to live. But I can use this character and this um, this work of fiction to put myself in Shelley's world and the reader, you know, because we imagine something happening to your loved one. What would you do and what links would you take to find the answer? And that's what we see in Shelley. And I appreciate you opening up so much about that because I feel any person who has experienced grief and loss, they have thought similarly to what you were just opening up about, about like, what could I have done differently? Or like the could have and the should have of it all. Yeah. And I'm just kind of also curious, because I mean, I've dealt with my share of grief, and I'm sure a lot of listeners has as well. What do you, when those moments come bubbling back up for you again, what do you have the conversation with yourself to kind of remind yourself kind of what you're saying that the path that I've chosen to go on, this is, I did everything I or kind of like to work through that moment. For me, it's been, uh, I've worked with organizations like Safe Horizon, and they are the largest shelter in the country helping survivors of domestic violence. So when I first told my story of my sister's death publicly, um, it really wasn't by plan. And and I'll be honest, and I've said this before um, to friends and those who know me, I didn't want to appear to be another celebrity with a sad story to get on the cover of People magazine. I just did not want that journey. I don't say that to be flippant. I think we all know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, that happened. Oh, you kind of know that. And it's not that it's not born from an authentic space, but when you're a celebrity, people always wonder why you did it, right? What was the ulterior motive? And I didn't want that question. And I hosted an event and there were young girls there and they were about 15, 16. It was an event for high school age kids. And all of the young women got up that night and shared how they had been abused by a boyfriend. Each story more horrifying than the next. One girl showing where she had to get staples in her head. Another retelling this moment where she was beaten with a a vacuum cleaner hose. I'll never forget these stories. And I'm standing there and I said, oh gosh. And knowing my sister's death, and it had been a couple of years after my sister had passed away. I'm sitting there and and I got up the mic because I was the MC. And I said, I can't look at you all and and watch you share your story with such courage and not be honest where I'm from. We have a saying, fair exchange, no robbery. And that means if I'm telling you and Danny, Sarah, my business, Mm -hmm. and you're not telling me your business, I'm about to get robbed. You're not going to leave here with a tell all about me. (laughs) We're going to both, I need your tea and my tea and everybody else's for it to be even, right? You don't want that one friend. You're there, Sarah. You're like, oh my gosh. And they're just going, really, really? You want them to either mm-hmm. identify or mm-hmm. share something. So I told them the story of my sister. And that started this process of releasing shame, releasing guilt, and releasing uh, that question of, could I have done more? Mm. 
And it started this great relationship with the organization, um, with great people that I work with today. And it's been something that my sister's son has been involved in as well. So in that course of dealing with the space that I meant to live in, it did inspire this wonderment, if you will, about other people when you lose a loved one. And I've been there. I've been at the scene as a reporter knocking on the door and delivering the news. I've been the reporter that people have called and said, hey, can you give us some more information or what are the police saying? So it's just, it's interesting how this series and my life collide, but having the liberty to uh, create other scenes that are uh, page turners is also fun for me. And I know that's an interesting word to take fun, but it is in the sense that it's allowed me to create something that I never imagined. Mm -hmm. And when you can you know, mark off a success on your life's list. It is fun. Yeah. And I feel like it's just a way to kind of get it all out in like catharsis. And one thing I thought was really interesting about the book too, you had kind of said like, oh, you know, the detective, there wasn't enough evidence to charge. But I feel like on the reporter side, there was a little bit of that element as well. Like Jordan keeps struggling with, oh, there's not enough to go on the air. Like I, I don't have enough yet. And I feel like in the journalism landscape, that we're in right now where people are constantly just think journalists just kind of post whatever it was, I thought helpful and eye opening to hear you kind of sort of go into those rules a bit. Was that part of like, was that a conscious thought you were having when you were writing it of like, we should explain how it works kind of? Absolutely. Because this, you know, when, when I first pitched the character of Jordan Manning, a journalist solving crime, and and a black woman, nonetheless, written by a black woman, people told me, oh, that this character did not exist and does not exist until Jordan, which I was surprised. I didn't want her, um, and again, to be very honest with you, because when you walk in as a reporter, you don't get to pick the background of the person you cover. You walk in and they say, this is who you are covering. So the first book, which dealt with the disappearance of young black girls, when my book appeared on Amazon under black books, I was bothered by that. Because as a journalist, as a reporter, I'm an unapologetic black woman. But any case that comes in front of me, I'm going to, to dive in. I lead with compassion. And that's what Jordan leads with. Mm. But I wanted the reader to understand, at least when I was coming up through the ranks of reporting, what it was like. I didn't have Twitter. We just couldn't go on and like someone else's story or retweet someone's story. That was unheard of. You had to have sources. You had to have enough information especially in like a case where there's a suspicion involving an individual who can sue. Remember Richard Jewell's case. I was cutting my teeth in the business when the Richard Jewell case happened. That shook the world of journalism. Everyone thought Richard Jewell had blown up the Olympic building in, in Atlanta at that time. And now we've seen the, the fiction version of that through the movie, which a lot of kids didn't even know about it. But that was a game changer because an individual could take on big stations and win. Mm. That said, for every step forward, you see many steps that go in the wrong direction, irresponsible reporting, loose reporting, thinly veiled sources. And for me, I wanted with this character to take the reader into the world I experienced as a crime journalist, which was one um, of great uh, skepticism from editors and lawyers. You just can't go out and say, oh, her husband did this. You had to have your facts. And there was also a moment, too, that 
I thought was very interesting where Jordan's pushing to get this story told, but I, I think her editor says something about, you know, what is it about this case? We can't just fall victim to missing white woman syndrome. Can you kind of talk about that mm-hmm. as well? And that was a brief nod to the first book, which dealt with these missing Black girls and Jordan as a reporter in the newsroom feeling that there was not the the interest, the interest in the in the newsroom wasn't there. And at the time I wrote the first book, Gabby Petito had gone missing. And there was obviously the uncomfortable conversation that comes up all the time of why. You know, why did this case turn into a national phenomenon? And it's a challenging one. As you know, Gabby Petito's family deserved to be the, the the lead story. They wanted to know where their child was and what happened to her. But you had at the same time a young man in Illinois who sat in a morgue unidentified um, because police did not take that same level of interest in what happened to him. So you're always facing this this question. So in that in that dialogue, it was a nod back to the first book where Jordan wants to know where Marla is and she wants her to be the lead story and she is a white woman and her editor is saying, wait a minute now, you, Jordan, you're falling for the missing white woman thing where mm. if she is white, if she is blonde, we care more. And Jordan says, wait, wait no, I care about her. I don't, that's not what's happening here. But those are real questions. Uh, the great Gwen Eiffel was the person, the journalist who coined the phrase missing white woman. And so now I wanted Jordan, a black female journalist, but a journalist first and foremost, to be challenged in that way. Why do you care? Is this missing white woman? Have you fallen for this too? That every time a white, Mm. beautiful woman goes missing, that this is the story? And Jordan says, no, 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 no. This is a story because it's a story. And that's where you see that. I feel that's what is such a great peek behind what goes into, because obviously so many people who listen to our podcast are fans of crime reporting and- things of that nature. But I feel a lot of times if you're not in it, you don't totally know those inner working conversations. So do you feel even while writing, there were even moments from uh, your your career where you're like, oh, this is bringing me back to the early days when I had to like prove all my chops and everything like that. And looking back at that, were you, how do you feel about the evolution of kind of how journalism is going today? Absolutely. I mean, this again, when I started out, I started out, and I remember this conversation with a news director who's no longer in the business and probably for good reason, but I remember being a young reporter and back then you would put up a description. You'd say, you know, white male, five foot four, blue t-shirt, you know, and this particular day there was a police, you know, I don't know what happened, a robbery or something, and it was a black male, five, eight, and I think he was wearing a black jacket. And they back then would put it on the news. And I said to my news director at the time, we can't, that's my brother. That can be anyone. And I'll never forget. He said, well, that's what police gave us. <laughs> and that was acceptable then. That would never happen today. So thankfully, journalists and in and, and the community and people, you know, said, okay, we can't have Central Park 9. You know, we can't, this is, you can't just get, you know, uh, Latino, brown skin with a t-shirt. You know, you can't do that. And so we've seen it evolve in wonderful ways that society deserves and we all deserve, right? Because even though that may not look like your brother's description, you don't want anyone to go through that, right? So uh, in fact, what, what is the series now we're, we just watched uh, about the Boston, the Stewart case? 
I can't remember anyway. It's a famous case from the 90s. It shook Boston. A pregnant woman and her husband were driving, and he called 911. He told police that someone had come into the car, carjacked them, and shot and killed his pregnant wife. It turned into a manhunt for every black kid in Boston. It turns out the husband did it. It was a national uproar. And just recently, the new mayor of Boston apologized to the community. It divided an already fractured Boston and brought wounds that have yet to be healed. Because back then, you would just go off of black guy, t-shirt, came out of the woods. And so we've advanced in so many great ways. But to your point, and to your point of your question, we've also seen people um, become very lucrative, you know, doing crime shows and become superstars and say any and everything out of their mouths about cases that have ramifications later on. We Yeah, we were interested in your thoughts because crime stories are having a huge moment and it's kind of everything from a Netflix documentary to, you know, I don't know, someone on TikTok. And I think there's even a line in your book where Jordan is like, oh, do I have to worry about every random person on social media taking the job of a journalist? And and it's not, and for me, it's not a worry of it. it. It's a little different for me than Jordan's point of view. My concern, and, and one of the reasons I ended my deadline crime show was there was a, a, a glam crime, right? People, and I, and I remember like sixth, second or third season, I grappled with the fact that we were doing dramatization, right? Because someone didn't go home. Someone, I mean, when we say, the, think about this, you have a script that says, and he bludgeoned her to death, right? And there's a dramatization and it's a cloudy guy. And this that happened. Someone didn't go home. Someone's last minute mm. was spent in this fear. And I, while I don't want to turn on the television, mm and us be horrified and terrified to sleep at night. I don't want people to think, oh, it's just, it's a TV show. Someone didn't go home. Someone didn't wake up. Someone lives with the trauma, the scars of what happened to their loved one. So it's a delicate balance and I get the the interest. I watch pretty much everything. I'm a TV junkie, period. I sleep with the TV on, so it's probably nothing you can name that I haven't seen. Uh, I might need a break after salt burn, but everything else has been good. <laughs> I can't even let somebody play that song. And I, was like, oh, I, it. I was like, I don't want to hear Mur- it's a Murder on the Dance floor. I was like, no, please. I mean, it's a, it is a cut, right? It is <laughs> good. It is catchy. Now it's, it's stuck in my head. Too. Uh, but I need, a, I need a cleanse after salt burn. But and, and folks ask me all the time, why do I believe so many of us are interested in crime? And I say it is, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? We know that feeling of walking into a parking lot and you're like, wait a minute, is there another car? You know, because you know, you've seen it either in a fictionalized version or a real life version. Or, you know, uh, I have this, I'll tell you my thing. I watched um, years ago, a Harry Connick Jr. movie where he played a serial killer and he was in the bathroom. It's the only bad role he's ever played. Like, I mean, meaning like a bad guy. Yeah. He's always a bad guy. And he's like, oh, Sigourney Weaver's in it. And he strangles Sigourney Weaver from over the top. I later cover a similar story where a woman, thankfully, she survived, but she was attacked in the bathroom. This guy was already in there. And I, if you ever see me in the bathroom, I will get on my knees and I look under every stall because you don't know it can happen to you, right? I don't want to scare you listening, but anything is possible. I think the other factor is we wonder if we were, 
a juror what our decision would be. You know, you wonder if I if I were a juror, would I have come to that decision? If I was an investigator, would I have come to that conclusion? I remember um, I was covering a case in South Oak Cliff, Texas. It's right outside of Dallas. It's a community, but it's a neighborhood, but they call it South Oak Cliff, Texas, as if it's its own town, but it's just a community. And there was a fire. And I got to the scene with my cameraman. And the man, there was a man out front. He was related to the two people inside. The victims had died, an elderly couple. And I am telling you, as I am looking at both of you right now, as clearly as I see you, I am still to this day convinced I saw the word murderer across his head. He was later charged. And you wonder, I think when you're watching this, would you have seen the signs coming? Would you have that inkling or that premonition about that person when it's a loved one? Like in the case of Marla, you wonder the person next to me capable of that and worse are you capable of it is there mm. something that could drive you to harm another person so i think that's why it's a it's a it's a uh, a potpourri of emotions if that's it but it's could i could it happen to me could i do that to someone could i be the juror to, to convict them did they get it wrong? You know, it's a lot of things. I think we put ourselves in the shoes of the people we're watching and wonder how that's going to play out. That is, so, that's so true. Cause it's like you, I feel I always leave thinking like, oh my God, that could happen to me or what would happen or all. And like, you just kind of, then you become like the armchair therapist of like, I wonder what was going down with everything too. Yeah. In that regard, it's a whole. And why didn't they see that coming? Wait, didn't she know? And or, or my, 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 the one that I, I always hear people, they had crazy eyes. Didn't she see the circles all around their eyes? Once I interviewed Sylvester Stallone uh, years ago, and he was talking about someone that he had dated. And he said, I should have known she was crazy. She had, you could see all the whites around her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvester. I was like, huh? This because I- you wonder. You wonder if you can see it. Yes. And the hindsight is always the, the crystal oh. clear view. Always, always. I'm kind of curious because you're talking about how you watch everything and you're a TV junkie. Do you picture this novel and the series being adapted one day? Would that be a hope for you? Or do you kind of love it in just the written novel realm? Or would you want, because I know you were just talking about watching True Detective at the beginning. Yeah. I love it in all forms. I love it. You know, when Sarah said she, you know, devoured it. And I, I and when I imagine someone reading it, I see you know, someone in rural Texas where I'm from or someone on the train in Brooklyn reading it. You know, I I just visualize every type of person consuming it. Um, When I wrote it, I think I naturally write in a TV mind. So the the cliffhangers and the way it was written, I think just that's my writing. That's my training, right? So I only know how to write TV. I was winging it. I didn't go on any YouTube channels and say how to write a novel. I didn't didn't study anyone (laughs) because I didn't feel like I was copying them. Uh, Even though I have many people... Uh, like Walter Mosley, who I adore, you know, so I, I just figured I would wing it. And, and I think through my natural style, it sounds like a TV show, but it can live in many forms. I, I wanted to um, record the audio and read the book myself. And the at the time I was told that, oh, well, quote unquote, celebrities only read memoirs. And I'm like, but I'm not a celebrity. I want to read mine. So, you know, it was it was tricky, but Mm-hmm. We'll see. Well, and I feel like until we get the Netflix adaptation, you guys should all pick up a copy of Watch Where They Hide. Oh, 
Especially because if this is you winging it, <laughs> it's so oh good God. and so well done. Thank and it works. You. Sarah read it on a beach. I read it on a train. So you really can do any any kind. See, I had a premonition. Yes. Just like that man. See, I got you. I got you. <laughs> Only people who report crime have six sense of humor like this. We, You have to laugh to keep from crying. And that's part of why I wanted to write this book with Jordan. I've held a lot of... Um, the victims in my heart. I've thought a lot about their family members. Uh, I had a rule for many times I wouldn't look at autopsy pictures because once I covered a case of a kid in Missouri who was murdered and someone mistakenly put his picture after he was found in my file and I saw it and it just, it broke, I almost couldn't cover the story. It broke my heart and I met his mother. And, and so I hold these people who have been so kind and so brave to allow me to be part of their family in some ways, because as a reporter, I saw myself as that. And that's why it was a relief to go into the talk show world and interview housewives so that I could have a little bit of escapism there because these are real stories. And with Jordan, she allowed me to deal with, and I don't use this lightly, some of the PTSD that I feel that I experience. You know, firefighters are trained to go into the fire. Mm. Uh, police mm. officers are trained to expect to go on a shooting and some of these things. As a journalist, I wasn't trained for that. I went to Temple University. The most I studied was law and ethics of journalism. Uh, and then in a short eight months after I graduated, I was with my cameraman working overnights and we were told that there was a shooting outside of a small business. We got there and we arrived and the person uh, was on the ground bleeding out. I got there before the police. I got there before the fire department because he was in an area of town that there was a delay in response. His wife arrived before the police and, and, and the ambulance and, you know, first responders. And I was the first person to comfort her as she screamed, seeing her husband's body right outside of their business. I was a kid. I was in my 20s. I wasn't prepared for that. And I, with Jordan, would like to take the reader into a side of a crime journalist that they don't get to see. You don't get to go home and forget that a mom just squeezed your hand and showed you the kindergarten picture of her baby. You know, you don't get to forget that, and and sh nor should you want to, right? I don't want to forget mm. a single person I ever covered. And so Jordan gives me a chance to do that, but I also wanted her to, you know, have a dating life and friends. And so that's why you see the little bit of the sex in the city, you know, all of that, because I want, you know, she's, she's, she's a multidimensional human being. And while she covers these cases, like so many other women around her age, how many people, she's trying to balance love and work and aspiration and ambition and how that all gets in the way of things. So it's a, it's a, it's a full view of this character that I hope sticks with people and that they enjoy the ride with her. And we'll just see where her shenanigans take her next. I think she might get fired from our morning TV oh, show. No, and, no. And you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Book three. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat thank with us too. You. I adore you both. And thank you so much. It's an honor and I'm so happy. And I'm so deeply um, humbled and flattered that you even read my book. I appreciate it so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time and thank congratulations you. too on it. Oh, thank you guys. Be well. Hope to see you soon. And maybe in person and with my stuff. Bye <laughs> <laughs> uh, now. Bye. Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales Pico, Sean Kilby, and Rebecca Sosmacat. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. 
social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at Not Another True Crime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and send all of your emails to NATC at Betches.com. Betches.